Diane, it's Sunday, 11.58 in the morning. I'm sending you the latest episode of season two of Horror Vanguard's Twin Peaks Retrospective. I think you're going to get a kick out of this one. All right, listeners, we are back. We are back at the diner. We are sipping coffee. We are enjoying pie. It is time at last for the return. Not the return to Twin Peaks. That's next year. This year is season two of Twin Peaks, our Twin Peaks retrospective. I am Ash, one of your co-ghosts, joined as always by John, aka the Liquid Guy. How's it going, John? Yeah, good. It is it, the uh, the the coffee is excellent. The pie is delicious. Uh, the log lady of podcasting has visited us <laughs> once again. Uh, I'm I'm fine. I'm like. Big picture, I'm fine. Um, but I don't know. I don't know if I told you, but uh, just a moment ago, someone knocked on the door of the HV crypt. Um, I opened it uh, and was shot three times at point blank range. Um, <laughs> okay. It's fine. It's it's so fine. Don't worry about it. I'm just in a bit of a weird space right now. Okay, cool. I, I made sure I, I I saw that, and I, and I made sure to do something to help you out. I hung up the phone for you because it kept ringing. So I, yeah, I hope that yeah, that yeah, helped. Yeah. No, I'm I'm giving you a very slow thumbs up right now. <laughs> I also took one of your rings. I think that might be useful, but in a way I haven't figured out yet. Cool, cool. Uh, yeah, yes, I, we are. I, oh, I was I was just going to make an owls. The owls aren't what they seem joke, but we're, we'll have the owls aren't what they discourse in just a minute, so we can skip that one. <laughs> we are we are back. We are back in the beautiful town of Twin Peaks, not far from the Canadian border. We are talking about the first season of episode two, so episode eight overall. May the giant be with you. Um. How does it feel? How does it feel to be back in Twin Peaks, Ash? I I have missed doing these Twin Peaks retrospective episodes so much. To 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 a comical degree, I have missed these episodes. How about you? How are you how are you feeling being back in the wonderful land of Twin Peaks? I it's good. It's 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 we're going to go through a lot. <laughs> we're going to go through <laughs> quite a lot together and so uh i hope everyone's feeling feeling ready for this uh so i think maybe a good place to start as we talk about the first season of episode two uh, the first season of episode two no the first episode of season two is should we talk about the how this show decides to do its previously on twin peaks because it's so funny <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, I would love to hear your thoughts on this one. It, it is one of the more interesting features of season two. Uh, okay, so uh, obviously, uh, you, if you're starting a new season, you need to kind of bring people back up to speed. Uh, and the way that they decide to do this <laughs> is basically have one character explain to Cooper while he's lying in a hospital bed every literally everything that's happened <laughs> so we know uh and it's done by lucy who has just the best voice for this so yep. leo was shot jack was strangled the mill burned <laughs> shelly and pete got smoke inhalation Catherine and josie are missing nadine is in a coma from an overdose and of course leland and sarah palmer continue to be the most normal couple um 
what do you think about the choice to have all of this kind of exposition just delivered to Cooper rather than showing us what happens? I, I, I think this is this is so effective on so many levels because in in uh, Twin Peaks is one of those interesting sitcoms where the previous season almost doesn't matter, but that also makes the previous season so vitally important to understanding its context. It's able to wield like both of these mutually negating swords and having giving us just a spark notes of some high plot points and and kind of reducing the show to its most like I don't know like contemporary crime drama bullet points I, I think it's a fascinating decision to make I love that you described the show as a sitcom I think that's really funny <laughs> <laughs> although in fairness the opening like I don't I don't know I don't know what I was really expecting but I couldn't help but think so this first episode is like an hour and 45 I think that's yes. about right <laughs> But is it just me, or is, like, the opening half an hour, like, really goofy? <laughs> like, like the, this... the, bit where, the bit bit where Cooper is shot basically turns into, like, an extended physical comedy routine with, mm-hmm. like, a, a, a comedically old room service waiter. <laughs> like, <laughs> and I, 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 don't, I don't know, there's a bit of me that found this kind of, like, difficult to sort of latch onto at first because i do what, what do you think of this kind of like tonally like i say i think it's super interesting you describe you describe this in a semi-freudian slip maybe as a sitcom <laughs> well i think i think there's something in season two at least the the kind of like first leg of season two that's much more comedic you know you've got albert is much more a cut up in season two there are a lot more like bits and gags and jokes in this season and and i'm not quite sure what to attribute that to but i think now that we have the the kind of power of hindsight and we have twin peaks the return season three like we we can kind of see this trajectory of the world of twin peaks becoming increasingly unhinged right like you know like like first is tragedy then is farce you know like the death of laura palmer season one was very very challenging and very hard and in this season it's like We've got a lot of gags and a lot of jests and we've got like, you know, in the the first three episodes, we have like Jacoby's hypnosis scene. We have like all of this kind of like slightly more wacky stuff. And I think it's appropriate for a like deteriorating psychic landscape of the town and the people they're in. There's some good physical comedy, though. Uh, Andy gets to do some good physical comedy business by getting smacked in the face with a plank. Uh, (laughs) And it's interesting, Albert is kind of like the, the straight man of the comedy mm-hmm. duo of, that is him, the odd couple that's him and Cooper. Um, and yeah, the interesting thing about, okay, so this is maybe a slightly weird point, a slightly formal point. Um, but the interesting thing about comedy is so much of it is dependent upon like minute shifts in time. Mm-hmm. Like there's nothing worse than a joke that goes on too long, right? But yeah. there's nothing funnier than a joke that goes on just long enough, and it's about <laughs> and in a, and in a way, dealing with crime is about engaging with the nature of time and people's experience mm-hmm. through it. So, like, and he gets hit in the face. It's very funny. He doesn't fall down. He just kind of staggers around for a bit. The uh, the elderly room service waiter comes in with a glass of warm milk. 
very slowly leaves and then comes back in to give the bloodied Cooper on the floor a <laughs> thumbs up. Like so many of the like it's so it's so deeply silly, but there's so many interesting things happening with the framing and kind of like the the beat to beat time that's involved and the fact that in your season premiere where you have like double the episode length you allow like 30 minutes of basically wacky sitcom hijinks as your opening move yep and um, oh my god when 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 coop is laying their shot and 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 he's signing the uh the receipt and he asks does this include gratuity in in a in a bit that has now become gratuitous i that is just like 3d chess brilliance um well you and so i i don't know there's a bit of me that found found this opening kind of kind of weird to 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 get back into because you're right it's it's very goofy it's very goofy um and that's the kind of strange thing about a show which is like deeply concerned with a serious ethical investigation of the of of the sexual and misogynistic violence that that women particularly are subject to but it's also oh look the like the 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 slightly goofy local cop got hit in the face and it's funny and it's like i think the show kind of struggles to marry those two elements in this first episode and i i think that this is something that is kind of a uniform quality of stuff that david lynch works on because he ha- he has this kind of grotesque realism that he he's very interested in as an artist the 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 kind of like it's it's life it's life in a funhouse mirror right it, it is a true reflection but ev- all the proportions are exaggerated and like it's, this is something i think we talked about a bit in the season 1 stuff where it's like the the horrible tragedy is happening simultaneous to some of the wackiest hijinks you've ever experienced you know like the you you know like you will receive horrible news on the same day that like a late birthday gift shows up and like that is that is kind of twin peaks in a nutshell you know it's it's everything happening at the same time there's a there's a loudness to it that i think is the the dissonance is more noticeable in the in the start of season two here yeah i think so and and like i i don't think it's i don't think it's bad it just i don't know there's a bit of it that feels kind of weird but if we're talking about the weird then i think we have to talk about your favorite character we have to talk about the log lady we just talk about log lady yep 100 Uh, cannot go without talking about the log lady's pricey yeah i mean as the as the log lady of this podcast (laughs) what do you think so so this this log lady introduction um and, and again, like listeners, if you if you've only ever watched this on a streaming service, you might not have ever seen these. Um, I think they're still up on YouTube, and you can watch them there. But um, in the uh, television broadcast airing of the Twin Peaks episodes, each one would start with a little introductory speech from the Log Lady. Um, and in this one, you know, like she's talking about dreams, right? And one of the things that she talks about is, well, how many how many characters are in your dream? Like when you when you have a dream and it features your father, your mother, a lover, your coworker, a friend, whoever, like how many people are really in it? And the log lady kind of posits that like there's only ever one person in your dreams and it's you. You know, it's it's you, the dreamer, refla- refracted and reflecting through your own psyche. 
and I think I, I, I find that really compelling, right? Because like that's you know like that, that's a hermeneutic tool, right? That's a way of analyzing the dreamscape, and you you it's one of many. It has its own benefits. It has its own utilities. But like you know like so something we've kicked around on the show before is applying that like that very concept to the reading of a piece of media. You know how many how many you using log lady dream analysis? How many characters are in Twin Peaks? Well, there's just one. There's the viewer. There's you. There's the audience member. And and how you see and perceive Coop and all of these other people is just a refraction of the self through the prism that is David Lynch and Mark Frost. I don't know. I don't. I like. I think this is a really interesting question, which is like, if there is only one subject in Twin Peaks, who is the subject? Um, and I think I think the argument that it's the audience is actually a really powerful one. But an alternate mm-hmm. point uh, argument is there's a, the only one is Laura. I was that is exactly what I was thinking is that if there is one intra the text, you know, we we even see that in these first few episodes here, which was something we'll get onto later. That these characters, even in season two, these characters are still totally beholden to Laura's presence or absence, rather absent presence, as someone might have said. <laughs> my, as, my favorite my favorite Twin Peaks character Mark Fisher um, yeah or your other favorite Twin Peaks character Jacques Derrida uh, <laughs> Derrida would fit in very Both well Derrida would fit in very well oh my god Derrida would be indistinguishable from any any Twin Peaks character oh my god um or Adorno I could see Adorno working too oh too grumpy too 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 too, too suspicious of television as a medium I think <laughs> But uh, Derrida, totally, 100%. But so, I mean, yeah, Laura Palmer. But like, I actually think, I actually think Laura is an interesting character, mostly because she took on a kind of cultural impact, Mm -hmm. not just intra the text, but external to it as well, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. The posters of who killed Laura Palmer are like, are part of the cultural vernacular of the early 90s in a certain kind of like, a certain, a certain slice of like 90s Americana. And it's like, the kind of worrying thing is the degree to which the, I think, very obvious and very clear ethical and moral concerns that like Lynch has with things like the reality of life in America, kind of, it's very easily for people to gloss over and go like, oh, they're just being weird, and it's like, yeah, they are, they are being weird, but like it's a weirdness directed towards truth and not for its own sake. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. The the absurdities of the Lynchian world are are only there to kind of highlight the absurdities of our own world. If we think it's absolutely bizarre how how anything operates in Twin Peaks, that's only because in our world, right, the quote unquote real, it's infinitely worse. Should we should we get into the nitty gritty then? Should we get into the details of of uh, some of the discourse of this opening episode? Yeah, yeah, I think I think that that is the right the right move to make. And listeners in the audience, if you want to to get into the details of Twin Peaks, you might enjoy our season one retrospective, uh, which is which was made possible from support from viewers like you or listeners rather. Uh, Patreon patreon.com slash horrorvanguard, www.horrorvanguard.com, Twitter and Instagram at horrorvanguard uh, is where you is where you can find us, where you can support us. And your support um, uh, hides hides cocaine in our motorcycles. Uh, it uh, that's not ours. That's not ours. <laughs> that was that was that's, planted. That was planted by by the uh, rival greaser gang leader, 
um uh, but we by, we are by a rival podcast <laughs> but we we have formed a scooby-doo group to try and figure out who murdered a local popular high school girl um which may or may not be involved with extraterrestrial occult forces um let's let's kind of let's catch up <laughs> let's catch up with some of the residents of twin peaks shall we um, uh, yeah yeah so I want to talk very quickly about families. Um, it's a it's a sitcom. It's a soap. It's a slice of Americana, and it is deeply war- heartwarming to see that families continue to be like a weird Freudian nightmare. <laughs> deeply, uh, Leland Palmer has had his hair turn completely white. He spends a lot of this episode singing kind of like semi nonsense songs, uh, which is again turned into a good bit of like physical shtick with Ben and Jerry mm-hmm. um, but basically what's interesting about Palmer Leland Palmer is this idea of like a kind of semiotic collapse which he was going through in like the mm-hmm. the end of the previous season and it's found its way back into sort of like these this kind of semi nonsense singing um, yeah. what do you, what do you think about Leland Palmer's language so I, I find I find Leland Palmer's transformation to to be one of the most interesting things in this season. This season two, and we'll definitely be talking about this more in in future episodes. But but I, one one of the things that I find fascinating. So is he's had he's had the spirit of Bob kind of excised from his being, right? And so now he's kind of like back on his feet, overloaded with this rapturous joy, and it's almost as if his his daughter never died you know the only mark we see is on his body it's this denied white hair and and now he's 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 gone from kind of like being this manic force of evil to kind of this force of malignant joy he's he's almost more haunting and more threatening now that he is is free of a trans-dimensional demon man uh, yes, who we will spend far too much time with in the future. Um, there's there's another there's another kind of weird familial moment, which is the Briggs family, Bobby Briggs, local bad boy, local grunge icon, Bobby Briggs, uh, <laughs> who is constantly rebelling against his his dad, who is literally. Uh, the federal government uh, involved in like clandestine operations, <laughs> major Briggs, and but then there's this like kind of weird moment in the diner between them where it, Major Briggs tells te- Major Briggs tells him about a a vision he has, and he says it very clearly. It's not a it's not a dream, it's a vision, and it's this beautiful idea of the vision was his son, and this the kind of moment of. Uh, sort of psychic and almost spiritual reunification between the two. Mm-hmm. Um, what what did you think about that moment? So I think that's really interesting because this is one of the things like like we we spent a lot of time in the last season talking about the kind of strained relationship between father and son Briggs, and I think their their reunification, I guess I guess the the, the kind of spark or the potential of their reunification, I think for, foreshadows a lot of like interesting tensions that those characters represent and embody is one of the things we, we talked about a lot in the previous season is that like Bobby has some of the most correct analysis about what's going on in the community of twin peaks. 
you know, despite the kind of, you know, repugnant villainy of his character generally, he does see what's going on in this town. Um, and, and on the other hand, we've got Major Briggs, who is like sworn his entire life to the machine responsible for this evil, <laughs> but nevertheless retains a kind of like inc- incredibly interesting Zen aesthetic which which is and this is something that i would like to get your opinion on like do you think major briggs because one of the things i was considering in these first few episodes here uh he major briggs plays a heavy role popping in and out and it it feels more like his presence the things he has to say how he presents himself is less of a principled philosophical stance and more of the kind of uh waxing aesthetic that a lot of like it's it's the kind of things that kissinger would say when asked about all the people that he had turned into pasta sauce you know like i mean yeah absolutely he's he's he works he works for the military he's he's a he's a Mm -hmm. he's a specialist in psychological warfare he's a he's like why would you why would you take anything he says super super seriously but like in a way that make, makes his kind of vision sort of it's it's sort of cruel because mm-hmm. you know Bobby very clearly is like quite emotionally moved by it and it's like in that vision I wonder was Major Briggs still wearing his uniform which seemed to be the only clothes that he owns mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. Oh, yeah, he he is his uniform, you know. Be beyond yeah. the sense that Twin Peaks, everybody has a uniform, but yeah, and and, and totally like and like like it's it's kind of like it's not so much a joyous reconnection of father and son, but like an explicit threat, you know. Like Bobby's Bobby's struggle for some kind of freedom, right? His ill his ill defined and and unprincipled resistance to the world around him. You know, like the worst way that that could resolve, the darkest thing that could become is if he just replicated his dad. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, and then, then we have, then we have. So, like, we've got the Palmers, uh, we've got the Briggs, and then we've got uh, Ben Horn, Ben and Jerry. Uh, we've got the brothers Ice Cream, who <laughs> continue to just, just be the worst. Just the oh man, and, and this is this this says something given like the the nature of most of the characters in Twin Peaks. But like, my God, are those two greasy? Yeah what what do you think? What do you think about our reintroduction to Ben and Jerry? I mean, I, I think the thing that I find interesting about those characters, those two especially, and their their dynamic with each other, and this is something I don't think we talked about in season one, but I think it's more apparent through season two, is that like. So Ben Ben Horn is your classic Gothic patriarch, right? This is something we talked about a lot. Um, and the classic Gothic patriarch does does a few things, right? He's he's some kind of failing baron, right? And Ben Horn is a type of failing baron. He's got this business empire that's on the verge of collapse if this deal doesn't go through right. You know, he's he's architectured too much crime and nefarious deeds for it to fail. Um and he also has to have an incestuous relationship with his daughter, who is also trapped in some kind of labyrinth. In in season one, the labyrinth that Audrey finds herself trapped in is literally the walls of the Great Northern Hotel. And now here in season two, the labyrinth is a bit more metaphoric. It's addiction. It's it's the uh, like brothel she works at, one-eyed jacks. 
all, all things owned and architectured in the result of her father's actions. Mm-hmm. But I think, you know, like we we see a new dynamic with Jerry and that's the kind of like, uh, or at least a fleshing out of a dynamic where like the the kind of incestuous bond between these two and and just as as a way of highlighting the general the, the general like absent moral core of the horn patriarchs yes yeah um who are who are just gleeful in how much they love doing crime <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah um so so they they haven't really changed but i think we should also we should then talk about we should talk about what has happened to um i mean i think my favorite character in the show uh the legend that is audrey yes uh, what do you what do you think about how the show is dealing with audrey's choices so i i think i think this is a really powerful continuation of a lot of the themes in season one for both Audrey and for Laura. Um, Audrey is nothing if not agential, right? Audrey mm-hmm. is a force in the plot of the show. She is directing its action. She makes choices, and those choices have wide-ranging repercussions, both positive and negative. Um, and I think that makes her capture all, all the more powerful, right? That, that makes what's going on with her and her kind of like labor in... Uh, one-eyed jacks the, the, the tension is so much more real than like you know we, we just got done with an, talking about an episode of, uh that was straw dogs and eden lake two two films in, in which uh women are nothing more than props in the agency and architecture of a patriarchal world uh and worldview on top of that uh and it's it's like kind of paradoxically refreshing to watch audrey create all this chaos because she has clearly spelled out goals she's trying to achieve them she has things she wants that are both positive and foolish she is arguably one of the most fleshed out and like quote-unquote human characters in all of twin peaks and it contrasts so much with laura laura's like this ghost in the show you know her only agency is her absence right and and then audrey this person that like almost everyone hates or despises or is annoyed with um is is actually like you know, like our our uh, final girl, if you will. Yeah, I'm. I mean, I'm. I'm a. I'm a. It's a well known fact. I'm an Audrey, uh, a complete simp for Audrey. Like <laughs> <laughs> icon queen can do no can yes. can do can do no wrong in my eyes. Um. Uh. But yeah, I think that's I think that's true, and it's about the escalation of what happens to her because she doesn't necessarily grasp the consequences or the kind of scale of the problem that she's you know trying to you know see that she can go 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 forward and solve mm-hmm. and it's like it, it she's you know there's a very kind of classic gothic moment it's very uh rochester and jane Eyre where she's oh, literally yeah. like calling for cooper to come and help her mm-hmm oh yeah yeah a- a- absolutely and this this really like Cooper is is also like your classic gothic male protagonist in so many ways. He has this kind of like, you know, he's like Conrad or something. He has this efficient relationship to the state that grants him a, a level of power and nobility. But he is also additionally noble beyond that limitation, you know, mm-hmm. and, and he's not willing or he's not unwilling to kind of risk his relationship to the kind of font that gives him his power in order to save the day. 
I think it's 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 a it's so compelling to look at this through the lens of early gothic fiction. <laughs> I mean, yeah, absolutely. I think that completely. I think that completely works, especially especially with Cooper and Audrey. Oh um, yeah. Uh, any any kind of like final thoughts as we wrap up this first uh, foray back into Twin Peaks? Yeah, and I think I think a lot of Twin Peaks is very like. It's very avant in its theoretical posturing. And and one of the things in this kind of first episode that I really like is there's like a lot of talk about like seeing through walls, right? This kind of like the perception of x-ray vision. And like, you know, you can interpret that literally or you can have fun <laughs> and take, take those like elements and be like, okay, like, well, what would it mean to like actually see through a wall? And this got me thinking of uh, one of our earliest episodes, The Black Tower, this got me thinking of like a lot of conversations you and I have had about architecture and and psychogeography and like, you know, the fact that like how how could we see through a wall in a way that isn't just comic hero nonsense, you know, and that's and that's a materialist analysis, right? Like that allows us to, to quite literally like see through the walls of power, right? Like both literally and figuratively, you know, like what what what's going on in the closed door deals of a bank meeting right like the specifics might be uh, you know lost to us but we'll, we know what's going to get architectured out of that by just simple material analysis so how do you think that applies to this how do you think that applies to to our engagement with twin peaks so that 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 i think is really fun right because like it all depends on how we see the presence of these walls and where we decide to to erect them. And this is something that I'm going to talk a lot more about in our next episode when we start talking about owls. <laughs> but like we could we could, you know, reduce Twin Peaks to simple fandom. We could erect walls between ourselves and the text. And those walls are made out of cemented bricks of one of the most disgusting products ever made ever made in the human endeavor. And that's the Laura Palmer wrapped in plastic Funko Pop. You know, and that that is a very palpable psychic wall between oneself and legitimate appreciation of a text and not to like, I don't know, whatever gatekeep enjoyment here. But like if it is reduced to such simplicity, that is a palpable wall between an individual and a text and like an actual deeper grappling, whether it's the types of analyses we use here on the show or others is a way of piercing that. Boom. I think we I think we stop it there. <laughs> All right. Well, everyone, we're back. This is this has been the first episode of season two of our Twin Peaks retrospective. Uh, we will see you all next week when we discuss episode nine, Coma. Diane, it is that we have more questions than we have answers. A new episode. New episode. reception of owls reveals one thing it is that we have more questions than we have answers